Uh, happy Mother's Day. And, and I love the way uh, Marion phrased that, you know, so that everyone gets to participate. And, and uh, not to take anything away from mothers, there's so many of you that have given and poured yourselves out. And uh, that's what this is all about. It's about that kind of love poured out in that way that mirrors the indiscriminate love of our Father. It's just so difficult for us to get our arms around a love like that. How can that be? This is, this is the thing. We, we need these little cues and clues along the way that show us that it's possible. But the ultimate is only when we feel it flowing from ourselves to someone that we can probably say doesn't deserve it, but it's flowing anyway, and it's flowing indiscriminately in that way. That's when we know that we know that this love is possible, that we know that it's flowing from somewhere through us and out, and then everything begins to change. You know, this morning on Mother's Day, we have a, I have, a kind of a, of a perennial message that I like to give um, because it's so important for us to try to connect the, the love of our mothers with the love of our Father in heaven and, and to try to see how this all fits together. And uh, what I was thinking about yesterday as I was uh, preparing for this was that how many of you have seen the movie The Passion of the Christ? You know? Okay. Most of you have seen it. Um, it's actually, and I just found this out yesterday, the most successful independent movie of all time. Made something like $612 million on a $30 million budget. Not too bad. But uh, it's also a movie that, uh, for me, seeing it once was probably enough. <laughs> I don't know how you all feel about that. But one time, it's kind of like Schindler's List. I can appreciate the art of it. One time was enough. But there were a couple of gems in, in that movie. And there were two especially, two scenes, that I wanted to talk about that, that just, uh, I can still remember them so vividly, even after seeing the movie only once. And they had to do with Mary. They had to do with Jesus' mother. And uh, one of them is, is that they are in their home, and Mary's inside, and she's preparing what probably looks like lunch based on the way the light's coming in, the, uh, the open uh, of, of the back that leads into a courtyard where Jesus is working away building a table. It looks like a really cool table, too. But as he's building it, and he's jumping on it, and she's calling him, Yeshua, Yeshua! And, and uh, he doesn't answer because he's working away. And she comes out there, and he has just finished it and sat on it, and he's sitting on it and bouncing on it, make sure it's sturdy. But it's a table that is about table height, you know, probably 36 inches high, that same size table that we would have. And she's looking at it, and she's walking around, and she says, that's a really tall table. Now, she's speaking in Aramaic, and you're seeing the subtitles, but that's a really tall table. He says, are they going to eat standing up? And the subtext is that maybe we don't get is that Eastern peoples ate reclining, lying down on their left side. And so the tables were really low, and they were just lying on cushions or on couches or whatever. So here's this table. They're going to eat standing up. And he says, no, they're going to eat like this. And he squats down a little bit and puts his elbows on the table. And she just looks at him. What's good? And so she walks around, puts down her jug that she has, and she sits down, and, and she's saying, you know, he says, they're going to eat like this? And he says, Who's, who wants this table? He says, it's a rich man. And she says, it'll never catch on. <laughs> 
And then she says, come on in for lunch. Are you hungry? Yeah. And uh, they're walking together. And she says, oh, you're not coming in with that dirt. Take that dirty apron off. He takes the apron off. And he starts to walk in. No, you got to wash your hands. And so she's pouring the water over his hands. And the camera pulls back into the house. And you see him wash his hands and then splash her with the water. And they laugh. And he grabs her and gives her this kiss. And it is just the loveliest scene. You know? The other one, which is heartbreaking, but even more powerful, is at the Via Dolorosa when Jesus is coming down carrying his cross. And she's on a side alley with John. And they hear the sounds, and the sounds are getting louder as the procession approaches. And just as Jesus' cross comes to the intersection of her alley and she can see him, it flashes back probably... 25 years when Jesus is maybe three or four and she's working and he's running up the street and he falls flat on his face and she sees that and you see everything in her. She just drops everything and with arms outstretched, she's running to, to get to him and it's cutting between her running to get to him as a three-year-old and running to get to him as he falls under the weight of the cross. And it cuts back and forth. And when she gets to him as a three-year-old, of course, she grabs him and she holds him and she's kissing him. And when she gets to him at the cross, the guards stop her, but she's able to move through and she gets to him and she's holding him. And the cutting between those two is so incredibly poignant. Just brilliant filmmaking. But you've already probably felt that. I know I have. When my daughter, my oldest daughter, was three or four years old, she escaped from the house, and I had no idea how she did She was a little escape artist. She was always getting out of her crib, and I never figured out how she did that. I mean, the thing was this high. But all of a sudden, you look around the house, and you realize she's not there. Where is she? And then I open the gate, and she says, how could she have gotten out of the gate? The gate is still latched. And then running up and down the streets. Have you felt that before when you've lost something that precious? And your heart and everything is right here in your throat, and you just feel that panic. You can see that in Mary's face, both as she's running to him as a child and when she's running to him as an adult. And we know that. We, can, we know that feeling. We know that connection that is so deep. Jesus and Mary had an amazing relationship. We must surmise. Don't you wish the New Testament gave us more information? (laughs) Don't you wish that it filled in all the blanks, you know, of what their relationship must have been like? I mean, I don't know about you, but I wonder. Ancient peoples wondered too, because they wrote all sorts of other gospels trying to fill in those blanks. Of course, they didn't make it into the, into the canon of the Bible, but it was that innate desire to know more. What was Jesus like as a child? What was the relationship between him and his parents? The, if you stop and you just look at the clues, the clues that the New Testament does give us, it's interesting because you see that there was this deep connection, but like every family... They had their tension. They had their stresses. Try to imagine Jesus growing up as a child, you know, for all intents and purposes, like a normal child as you're raising this little boy, right? And then that call, that inward call that was pulling Jesus on, that was getting stronger and stronger through his 20s, that eventually led him to be baptized by his cousin John and then drove him out into the wilderness for his walkabout. What was that like? 
as that call was getting stronger, as Mary felt him being pulled away from her, as she felt herself losing the connection that she had with him, that she wanted to hang on to. What was that like? What was it like, interestingly, in in the movie, it's just Jesus and Mary as if there were no other family members. You know, Joseph probably died somewhere early on, but the Bible is very clear that Jesus had brothers and sisters. He had at least three brothers that were named, and he had sisters beyond that. So there were more in the house. And if anybody got married, then there were, sis- there were daughters-in-law. And the house would have been full of, of life and maybe grandchildren. Who knows? Jesus would have been the head of that household. He would have been the one holding it all together. He was the eldest, and he was the man of the house, unless Mary remarried. And we have no evidence that she did. And so as he's pulling away, what's the rest of the family feeling when the head of the household is leaving? And what was Jesus like? What was his, his demeanor? What was his, his just attitude toward being that head of the household? Well, a couple of weeks ago when we were looking at the attributes of Jesus and we said that he was playful and lighthearted and bold but vulnerable and integrated, if he was all those things... Imagine what it would have been like to be in the household with Jesus. Playful, lighthearted, humorous, funny, always playful, always playing with the kids, with his brothers and sisters and whoever else was in there. And then to feel that start to drift away. What confusion there would be. What anger there would be, possibly. You know, in Mark 6, I believe, is it Mark 6? Yes, there's a a scene where Jesus' family comes to him as he's teaching, and they're trying to pull him out, and they literally say he's out of his mind. We think he's crazy. He's embarrassing the family, and they're trying to pull him out and take him someplace, like trying to get conservatorship, I suppose, because they think he's nuts. There's another scene where they come to him as he's teaching, and the disciples come and say, hey, your mother and your brothers are out there. And Jesus says, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? Take a look around. See these people here, my followers? Here is my mother. Here is my brother. The Gospel of John tells us at uh, chapter 7 that Jesus' brothers did not believe in him. In Matthew 10, Jesus says, and this is very poignant when you think about possibly the dynamic within his own family. He says, I didn't come to bring peace. I came to bring the sword. I came to set Son against father, and daughter against mother, and daughter-in-law against mother-in-law. Kind of an interesting choice of <laughs> of relationships. Son, daughter, and daughter-in-law. But if you think about it, those were the primary relationships in, in every home. Girls went to live with their groom's family. The boys never left. It was multi-generational families. The girls. So what you would have in your house were sons, daughters, and daughters-in-law. Jesus is saying, trying to follow this path is going to create tension in those that are closest to you often. Kind of a poignant reminder. When he says, if you want to follow me, you have to hate your father and mother, your sister and brother, and even your own life. Another kind of insight into maybe the pain that he was feeling over the disruption that was caused in his own family. Just piecing together the clues gives us something that's going on. And yet, the New Testament also gives us reconciliation. At the cross, Mary is there 
She is there with him completely. Jesus hands her over to his, one of his closest friends, to John, and says, Son, this is your mother. Mother, this is your son. And then we also find that James, one of his brothers who is named, was the Nazi of the Jerusalem church for the next 30 years. He followed after Jesus and headed up that community that Jesus established in Jerusalem for 30 years until he was stoned, until he was executed. So the love was there. The connection was there. But also the confusion over Jesus' choices in life, where he went with his life. So we see that Jesus was deeply devoted to his mother, And he was also deeply devoted to his Father in heaven. We see both of these. In fact, Jesus portrayed his Abba, his Father in heaven, especially by Hebrew cultural terms, in light of his mother. He presented his Abba Father as Ima, mother, at the same time. And this is fascinating. This is something we cannot miss. If we're going to try to understand who this Father is, if we're going to try to understand how we are loved, then we have to see what Jesus is doing here. The Hebrew understanding of the roles of mother and father are encoded right into their language. The Hebrew language, Aramaic, is so different than ours. It's a root and pattern system so that the actual letters have meaning And as you combine two letters into a root, that has meaning. And then as you add a third letter and create a child root, that has meaning. And another creates a word, and that has meaning. And so the words not only have meaning just horizontally, I guess, they have meaning vertically as well. As you look back through the roots and see all of those meanings that are giving you shades of meaning and a deeper understanding of how they understood each of these words and what they represented in their lives. So if you look at, a, at the, the word for father, which is ab, which would be the first two letters of their alphabet, aleph and bet, all right? Aleph means singular, one, unity, strength. It means the greatest of. And then bet is house. And so aleph bet would mean a strong house. They understood their father as the strong house, the one who gave strength to the house, kind of the pole that holds up the tent that that covers the family. He would be the one who was, as patriarch, he was like the king of that family. He was the leader. He was the, the, uh, the judge, the executioner. He was the jury, everything. He was the one who needed to accomplish what needed to be accomplished for the family to be able to survive. Now, mother was also Aleph and then Mem, the equivalent of our M. So Aleph Mem literally means strong water. Even today, our M is is the vestige of the original pictograph, which was the ripples of the surface of water, and it's still there in our M. Aleph, Mem, strong water. What does that mean? Well, when the Hebrews tanned the hides of their, of their sheep and their, their goats and their cattle, whatever it was, they would boil them in large pots of water. And as they did that, the, uh, the, the elements would come to the surface that were like a white, sticky substance, and they would scrape that off and they would use it literally as glue, as adhesive in uh, whatever they were making. So the strong water 
was understood as the glue that holds the family together. So, strong house and strong water. You have this picture of mother and father, man and woman, creating this full complementary home where the father is bringing the strength to the house and the mother is the one who is holding it all together. If you think about it, it's the connection or the, the, the continuum between accomplishment, between executing and action, decision-making, things that need to happen. That's all the masculine side. And then you have the relational, the compassion, the mercy. You have doing versus being, accomplishment versus relationship. But you have the full spectrum in the family as you bring mother and father together. In the West, we think so dualistically. We think of either or. We think, well, if God is father, and certainly he was referred to in the masculine, then he can't be mother because it's either or. But Jews don't think that way. They think unitively. They think in terms of a complementary or a continuum between the two. Light and dark, good and evil. We talked about this before. Good and evil is really from ripeness to unripeness. Good being ripe, evil being unripe. You know, the, the greatest good and evil that you could express in an agrarian society is what is ripe and what is unripe. But there's a continuum between the two. Between light and dark, there is the revolving of day and night, how each needs to exist and is complementary to each other. Father and mother are the same way. The strong house, the strong water, both are needed. It's the connection between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge Masculine, something that can be acquired, something that can be accomplished. But wisdom, something that needs to be experienced. Very different. Take a look at Proverbs 1. It's in your handouts or on the screen, I'm sure, starting at verse 20. Woman shouts in, wisdom shouts in the street. She lifts her voice in the square. At the head of the noisy streets, she cries out. At the entrance of the gates in the city, she utters her saying. Wisdom, chokmah in, in Hebrew, was personified as female, as a woman. Wisdom has to be experienced. Wisdom is relational. Of course it was feminine in the Hebrew mind. I've often, <laughs> there was a saying that said, uh, knowledge without wisdom is like a kid with his father's gun. Right. Another one was is that uh, knowledge is knowing that tomato is a fruit. Wisdom is knowing not to put it in a fruit salad. <laughs> These things are experiential. The only way that you acquire wisdom from knowledge is experientially, having lived through these things. And the Jews understood this. They knew that God had to be both Knowledge, wisdom, action, being, accomplishment, relationship. Not only that, ruach and rucha in Aramaic, both words for spirit are feminine nouns. Malkutha, kingdom, feminine. So the spirit is really she. And kingdom, it's really queendom, if you really want to get technical about it. Now, that's messing with some of your heads. I know it is. You know, the idea of... (laughs) Except for Kathy. She's doing woman power over there. 
But the idea of Mother God just gets us, doesn't it? There's something about our patriarchal system. There's something about the way we were raised. That just does not compute. But of course, they're not talking about male and female. They're talking about the complementary qualities of the two, how they have to work together. Knowledge is accomplished. Wisdom is experienced. And so they personify it as female. Not that they understood that wisdom was anything like God's consort or anything like that that you see in, in, uh, in other systems. They just understood that it was the same God, one God, but looked at one way, looked at the other way. You have Abba, you have Ima, you have Daddy, you have Mommy. It's the way it looks as you look at God from different points of view. Take a look at Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. The Lord says, when Israel was a child, I loved him. Okay, the Lord says, when Israel was a child, I loved him and called him out of Egypt as my son. But the more I called him, the more he turned away from me. My people sacrificed to Baal. They burned incense to idols. Yet I was the one who taught Israel to walk. I took my people up in my arms, but they did not acknowledge that I took care of them. I drew them to me with affection and love. I picked them up and held them to my cheek. I bent down to them and fed them. It is so often in Hebrew scripture that we see God anthropomorphized as mother, as female, as in this passage. One of the names of God, there are so many names of God in Hebrew, but one of the names is El Shaddai. Have you heard of El Shaddai before? Usually it's translated as Almighty God. So here is me going to get myself in trouble again because I do this from time to time. What El Shaddai really means, Shad in Hebrew, is the name for a breast or or a teat on, on an animal. Literally, what El Shaddai means is the mighty breast, the mighty teat. See, my wife is looking at me like I'm nuts already. She's hiding behind her program. As weird as that sounds, as maybe blasphemous as that sounds, think of where it's coming from in the Hebrew mind. They understand that God is this provider. God is the one that holds close and feeds and cares for in the feminine sense of that word. If God is just the king of the universe, the one that sits high up on the throne and never is the one who scoops you up and holds you to her cheek, how in the world do we understand the fullness? How in the world are we going to understand the love that is available to us unless we get the fullness of what is going on here, the fullness of Hebrew thought so that we can understand what Jesus is trying to bring to us. How can God be both father and mother at the same time? It's just the Western mind has real trouble trying to resolve that. Let me ask you this. Is the earth round or flat? The earth is round. Okay? For... Millennia, people thought the earth was flat. Why would they think such a thing? Because in daily experience, the earth looks flat. It feels flat. You are able to order your whole life around the fact that the ground is level. It wasn't until we were able to pull away. Actually, there were forward thinkers who realized mathematically it had to be a sphere. But it wasn't until that first spaceship pulled away and saw the curvature of the earth and understood what the earth really was. So now we know the earth is round in fact, 
But even today, and every single day of our lives, the earth is flat in experience. Round in fact, but flat in experience, both at the same time. See, the Jews understood their God as Father because he occupied that that role of king and judge and executioner and and the one who was the, the strength to the tribe and strength to the nation. He was father in fact, but he's mother in experience. The day-to-day experience of Father God is Mother God. The mercy and compassion that the prophets are constantly singing about and writing poetry about and are connecting under. The mercy and compassion that Jesus always leads with is the experience of Mother God in a day-to-day relationship, in a day-to-day connection. Father, in fact, mother in experience. Are we getting any closer to trying to resolve that? It's so difficult for us to do that. But the Jews had no problem leaving things unresolved, leaving paradox to lie, and just to experience life as life presented without trying to mentally resolve anything. Jesus had this intimate relationship with his Abba. He called him Abba. He used that word, which was what the children used, that meant daddy, was the affectionate term, the intimate term, because that was the type of relationship he had. But I guarantee that as he grew up, he experienced Ima, God, through his mother first and knew that that love was possible as he went out on his journey into the wilderness and found the fullness of exactly what that means. For Jesus... And for every single one of us, until we experience God as mother, Father God will always remain distant, cold. And no change in our lives will ensue because we are not connecting at that intimate level. Jesus was changed by the experience of his father as Abba, as Daddy, as Ima, as Mother, And it changed all of his relationships. It changed everything about him. When he came back from the wilderness, people were amazed. They didn't know what to make of him. Not that Jesus wasn't connected already and a loving person, but something changed in him as he experienced his father. When he came back and said, I am one with my father, he was one with his mother as well. And Jesus always leads with mother. He always leads with relationship. In every encounter that you read in the scripture, he leads with that. On the on the the cusp right between Mark 1 and 2, there are three stories all back to back that are basically telling the same story. Jesus confronts a leper, and then he confronts a paralytic, and then he confronts Levi, the tax collector. And what does he do in every instance? As soon as he meets the leper, and the leper calls out to him and says, please, you know, help me. Socially, there was no way that a clean Jew would touch a leper because then they would be unclean as well. And the chance that they would have that disease would have them cast outside the city gates. A leper had to call out, unclean, unclean, and then everybody knew to give him a wide berth. Here's Jesus confronting the leper. He says, help me. What's the first thing he does? He reaches out and he touches him. Before he was healed, before anything, 
He breaks a social boundary, a social barrier. He leads with the connection. Before he goes to Father God, to the healer, right? When he meets the paralytic, this is the paralytic that they cut a hole in the roof and they lower him down. First thing he says to him, son, calls him son, your sins are forgiven. That's a broken theological boundary right there. Not that Jesus says, I forgive your sin, but it was close enough for everyone to be outraged because only God can forgive sins. And he calls him son. He doesn't even know the man, but he calls him son. That was the intimate term that he used for his closest friends. Those three, Peter, James, and John, he called them son. He calls him son. Jumps right to the relationship, right to the connection first. Total acceptance before he does anything to heal or to move him forward. Leads with relationship, then moves to the teaching. With Levi, passes him by in the, in the tax collector toll booth. Hey, come follow me. Levi is so excited to come follow him because a Jew, especially a Jew of Jesus' stature, has accepted him at face value, invites him in his excitement over to his house. A good Jew would never enter the home of a tax gatherer or anyone who stood outside the law. Never, ever. Sure, Jesus is there. He's there reclining at the table, having a good time with the tax gatherer and all his tax gatherer friends. (laughs) And the Pharisees are outraged when they see this, but he breaks that boundary as well. Jesus is constantly breaking boundaries. He's leading with Mother God. He's leading with Ima. He's leading with relationship. He connects first, and then he teaches. He connects first, and then he instructs and he guides. He connects first, and then he says, go and sin no more. It's not the other way around. Always leading with Mother Why is this so important? Why is it important to us to understand some of these things? A few years ago, someone asked me, she said, I know that God loves me, but how do I know that God likes me? You ever thought of that before? I know that God loves me, but how do I know that God likes me? This is huge. This is a huge, huge difference. Liking implies affection. Liking implies taking delight, pleasure in someone's company. Liking is the desire that you just got to be with this person, that it's really not a party unless they're there. Liking is that you can't wait to see them again, that the smile is spreading across your face just as you bring them to mind. That's liking, you know? We're commanded to love, and especially we're commanded to love the enemy. You notice that we're not commanded to like the enemy? Because it's impossible. We don't get to choose who we like. We can choose who we love, right? I don't happen to like broccoli, but I like bacon. And that's just the way it is. I don't know why. You know, some of you really like broccoli. More power to you. I got some for you. Here you go. (laughs) We don't get to choose these things. 
Love can be a decision. Love can be father. Love can be masculine. It's a choice we make and it's an accomplishment that we do. Liking is something else. Why is liking so important? You know, we all say we want to be loved, right? But what we really want, isn't it, is to be liked? Because like is something very different in the way that it feels, the way that it is experienced. We can only like something that we have experienced. I don't like broccoli because I've experienced it. I wouldn't know that. I wouldn't know that. And so liking is intimate. Liking is a connection. That's what we're really after. Think of your favorite people. People you love the most. Ah, forget love. Just your favorite people. Love will mess up the, uh, the whole metaphor here. <laughs> Who is that person? Is it a spouse? I hope it's a spouse. That would be great. Your spouse is one of your favorite people. Is it a friend? Is it a coworker? How about a grandchild? Oh, come on. Grandchildren have got to be your favorite people, haven't they? You know, we're ready for a grandchild. Our, our kids are not cooperating yet. Think about your favorite people, right? Think about why they are your favorite people. You know, the affection that you feel for them. The fact that you just can't wait to see them again. That is the affection. That is the liking. You like them. You probably love a lot more people than you like, if you really think about it. We want to be liked. So how in the world can we know that God likes us. How can we know that? See, this is why at the effect, we so stress the contemplative spiritual spiritual life, contemplative spirituality. Because liking can only be experienced. It can't be taught. It can't be bestowed. And as long as God remains primarily in our heads, in our thoughts, just as knowledge, things we know about God, know Him theologically, then He remains Father only. And he remains distant in that way. It's only when we silence the thoughts, it's only when we step away from all of that knowledge that we can actually just be with God and experience Ima, experience the connection, experience how deep that love goes into liking. For some of us who do this, It may be the first time that we've ever experienced mother's love because some of you didn't get it in your homes of origin and that's a tragedy. But here in the prayer closet, here in the spiritual relationship, we can and we can go there. The experience of God at this level is always the experience of pure acceptance of delight, of mom. When we get out of our heads, when we get out of our thoughts, when we get all those ideas out of the way, this is what happens. This is what we experience. So what is it to to look at this liking of God? What does it look like in reality? Well, you could say that all of Jesus' teaching, all of his mission and ministry, and all of his purpose was just to show us this one thing, just to show us Mother God, to show us how we are loved and how we are liked. But Jesus, I think, tells us most emphatically 
in the story of the prodigal son. I think you all know the story. It's printed in your insert if you want to take a read, but we're not going to read it right now. I think you know it. The prodigal son, what does prodigal mean? It means someone who just spends extravagantly, just spends with abandon, doesn't hold anything back. If you really think about the nature of the story, it's really not about the prodigal son. It's about the prodigal father. And even beyond that, there was a scholar who said that the best way to describe the prodigal son's story is when dad acts like mom. That's really what this story is about. And if you recall the story, a man has two sons. The elder son stays right with his dad and does exactly what he's told. The younger son is the rebel. The younger son finally says, I need to get out of here. And he asks his dad for his share of the inheritance now, which is outrageous for him to do so, to in in effect say that his dad is as good as dead to him and he wants his inheritance. And then to take it out of the family and take it into a distant land. And spend it all there until he has nothing left and he's actually living in the pigsty with the pigs, which is the lowest form of, of fall that you can imagine in, in Hebrew culture. And when he comes to his senses and he realizes that my father's hired hands live better than this, then he devises the plan to go back and say, Father, I'm not worthy to be your son. But just let me be one of your hired hands, and that'll be enough for me. And so he sets off on the long journey home, and you can imagine him rehearsing this over and over and over and trying to imagine all the different outcomes and what he might say if his father does this or does that. But as soon as he crests the hill and his father can see him from his property, here he comes at a dead run. Now, we got to remember, Hebrew patriarchs don't run. It's undignified. He would have had to pull up his robe so he could run, flashing his knobby knees. Hebrew patriarchs didn't show any skin. That was immodest and immoral. And Hebrew patriarchs didn't welcome back a son who had done what this son did to his family. And yet here he comes. And the boy is rehearsing his speech and getting ready, but also bracing for impact because he's not slowing down. And he just runs into him and gives him this bear hug. The scripture just barely says he hugged him and he kissed him. But we don't understand what was behind those words. What those words really meant is he couldn't stop kissing him. And he draped him over his neck, himself over his neck. This boy who was still probably smelling of excrement and sweat and everything else. And the father couldn't care less. Bearded kisses are everywhere. And as he pulls away and tries to compose himself and starts to his speech, before he can even get the first words out, his father is barking orders to kill the fatted calf and start the party. This is the picture of liking us. This is the picture of love that is completely indiscriminate. This is the picture of a father God who likes us so much, can't wait to see us. It's not a party until we're home. And the party can begin now that we're here. This is what Jesus is trying to get across with every story, with every action, with everything that he is. He's saying to us, there is no party until you come home that I can't wait to see you. And I'm smiling just thinking about you. That's how Father and Mother God feel about you and every single one of us right now.
But we will never know how we are loved and how we are liked until we leave the distant land within our own heads and turn and face and come back and face our God and find that Father God really does act like mom. Let's pray. Father, we can only sit here in total gratitude. On this Mother's Day, as we're celebrating our mothers, we need to celebrate you as well. You were the first lover, the first one to show us in all creation this indiscriminate, absolute love, the love that can't be altered in any way because it is you. It's who you are. Thank you for loving first so that we can love after. Help us with the fears that we have, the defensiveness that we still feel because of the traumas that we've undergone, to be able to just represent ourselves to you as children, to understand more and more deeply how deep your love goes. Thank you for being our father. Thank you for being our mother. Thank you for allowing us to experience what that actually means. Never let us forget, Lord, that we can only love because you loved us first. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Let's all stand.